Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Kelly Reichardt's 2008 film, Wendy and Lucy. Michelle Williams stars as Wendy Carroll, a young woman from Indiana stopping in Oregon on her way to Alaska when her car dies and she ends up losing her dog, Lucy. Much of the film revolves around her desperate search for Lucy and her interactions with various people who either show a bit of kindness and humanity or who instead express indifference or outright cruelty. Released at the beginning of the Great Recession, the film resonates more than a decade later in the way it looks at financial instability, the struggles of the working class, and the very precarious nature of our lives. One bit of bad luck, her car breaking down, sends Wendy's life into a kind of tailspin that she tries to get out of with very few resources. I talk about many things in this episode, including the bonds we form with pets, our responsibility to other people, the making of the film, and much more. So I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can also access rewards and extras like bonus episodes and even merchandise. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Jenny, Eddie, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for supporting Her Head in Films and for being patrons. I appreciate it so very much. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode. You can tell your friends and followers about her head in films or you can interact with me in a positive way on social media i am on facebook twitter and instagram just look for her head in films and you can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode so i will not go on any longer here is my full in-depth discussion of wendy and lucy first Kelly Reichardt film this year, 2019, and I feel so ashamed of that. She's one of those directors that I've always been really interested in and I've wanted to watch her work, but I tell you my watch list as a cinephile is so incredibly long, and I know those of you who are listening can relate and you totally understand. I make lists, I tell myself, okay, I'm gonna watch these films, and then I'm on Twitter, or I'm reading something, or I come across something, and I totally ignore that list, and any of the films that I had on it, 
and then I watch something completely different. I try to keep myself on track because there's so much I want to see, but then at the same time, I'm someone who likes to be really open to spontaneity and to inspiration and my instinct. And so if I just feel pulled to a particular film and I feel like I have to watch it, then I then I sort of listen to my gut on that. And I don't know how to explain it to you, but I'm a very intuitive film watcher where I kind of feel like a film finds me at the time when I need to find it. And I know that sounds ridiculous and kind of new agey. And I'm not that kind of person at all. Like I'm not religious, not spiritual. I don't believe in these big ideas about fate and things are meant to be and things happen for a reason. I don't believe in some greater force or or anything like that. But for some reason in my life, I've just always found films when I needed them. And it's happened with books a lot too, because I love literature. I talk a lot about books on this podcast sometimes, because that's my background. I have a degree in English literature, a bachelor's degree, and also in women's and gender studies. And so I have a more literary background and I started much more as a bibliophile in my life. And it's only since I turned like 20 that I've become much more of a cinephile and I'm 30 now. So I'm about 10 years into this um, cinemania and this obsession with cinema. I feel like I'm kind of late to the game in some ways, but it used to be like books. I always felt like books found me when I needed them. Like I would find a particular writer that I needed at that moment. Now lately it's been more about films so I know this is like a tangent, but I just wanted to talk about that. I, I think that's why art is so personal. I don't think we can always explain why we're drawn to a work of art, why we're drawn to a film. I think recommendations are part of it. That's something great about social media. I don't love social media, honestly. I don't really love film culture online. I gotta be honest. But there are good things about it. I think if you can find a few people online or you connect with a few people there, either on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, whatever you're doing on there and however you're meeting people, I think if you can find a few people whose taste that you really trust, that can be a good way to find films too because you trust their taste and you feel like, well, if they say a film's really good, then I might like it. Or maybe you share similar interests. I mean, my interests are kind of idiosyncratic and all over the place. Everything from films about grief to films about the Holocaust to really lush historical dramas to films about women and loneliness and the inner lives of women. I have all kinds of interests in social justice documentaries and women artists. I'm kind of all over the place, honestly. But if you find some people who you, who like your taste sort of aligns, that can be a really powerful thing too, because they might expose you to films that you'd never normally watch unless they mentioned it, right? And I love sharing what I watch online because I really believe in sort of the magic of the internet sometimes that maybe me posting about a film on one of my social media accounts, maybe that sparks somebody, maybe that inspires someone to seek out that same film. And maybe if they hadn't seen my post, they would have never found the film and they watch it and they end up loving it. I mean, that's that like warms my heart. You know, when people tell me that they've watched things because I mentioned it or because I recommended it or because I covered it on the podcast, 
that is like the greatest gift (laughs) that anyone can give me is to tell me that because it just makes me feel like, oh, I'm having some kind of impact or influence or I'm reaching people, right? Because what I want more than anything is for those of you who listen to watch the films for yourself. I'm not the authority. I'm not the be all end all. You know, who cares what I think? It's really about what you think and your own experience with a film or with a work of art. Like that's what I wish for you is that me talking about a film exposes you to it and gets you interested in it. And that's, you know, I've, I feel like that's a really beautiful thing. And it's, it's something beautiful that's been brought into our lives through the internet. You know, back in the day, the way that I found films was like through Robert Osborne on Turner Classic Movies. Like if Robert Osborne said a film was great, then I believed him. And I've found so many films through him, like The Passion of Joan of Arc and Brief Encounter. I've covered those films. I've covered a lot of the films that he exposed me to. And nowadays with the internet more people have that function, I guess. They have that role that they can play. And it's why I tend to focus more on the positive, why I don't really want to be really critical of films, and why I would rather just share films that I'm passionate about and that I love, because then I'd, I'd rather share that with you. I'd rather pass that on to you. Like, here's something that could affect you or change your life, or maybe you could fall in love with a director, right? So I I encourage you to be adventurous in your film watching, right? And yes, listen to recommendations. That's always great. My watch list gets longer every day because there's a few people online who I just really respect and I like their taste and it aligns with mine. And they have my watch list getting so long. (laughs) But at the end of the day, if I'm drawn to something and nobody's recommended it, or maybe it has a low rating on IMDb, right? Or whatever uh, rating places there are, I might still take a chance on it. You know, if I'm interested in it, if the description intrigues me, if I like the actress in it, if I like what it's about, I'll take a chance. It's good to have those recommendations, but it's also really great to just explore for yourself and make all kinds of discoveries. And that's like the fun part for me with cinema. I feel like I'm just always discovering stuff. It's like a really beautiful thing to me. I can't really put it into words to you, but I love sort of just being alone in my room and discovering a film, discovering a director. And for me, Kelly Wrightcard is kind of like that. I'd known about her for years. I was intrigued by her. And then I just finally decided I'm going to watch some Kelly Wrightcard, you know? You don't hear a ton about her. To me, she's a bit like, they have different styles, but she's a bit like Joanna Hogg, maybe. Like when I was first watching Joanna Hogg, I watched Unrelated. Nobody recommended that film to me. Nobody told me about it. Nobody was talking about it. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And I have an episode about Unrelated. And it's only now that like this year, 2019, Joanna Hogg has gotten so much attention. And I did my episode about her like a couple of years ago. I tend, sometimes I'm a little bit ahead of the curve, I have to say. I'm not tooting my own horn, but I just sort of believe in listening to your own gut and your own instinct. And yes, there's directors who are very popular among the cinephiles and the art house people, but that doesn't mean that you have to watch them. You know, you can watch people that are off the beaten path and you can watch both. You know, you can watch the mainstream art, the the art house directors that everybody loves, of course. 
but don't be afraid to watch directors that nobody talks about. You never know who you might discover and you might fall in love with their work. That's just the fun thing about being a cinephile is like we all have our favorite directors. We all have films that like impact us and and affect us in such different ways we all have like our top 10 that's so different so unique and I was just talking to someone about this you know of how our engagement with film is so deeply personal and so unique to each one of us and I think that's a beautiful thing go with your gut go with your instinct explore discover that's the fun thing to me and sort of drown out all the noise yeah, somebody might rave about a particular film or director and then you end up watching it and it does nothing for you or vice versa. And, you know, here's this obscure director that no one talks about and you're in love with their work deeply, right? So Kelly Reichardt just, she always interested me. I have not seen her entire filmography. I definitely want to watch more. I've only seen this film, Wendy and Lucy, and then I saw Meek's Cutoff, which I really liked too. I want to see Certain Women. I want to see Old Joy. I'd love to see her debut, River of Grass. I've got plans, trust me, to watch more of her work because I do like her style. And of course, I'll talk more about that. And I know I've gone on a tangent with all this, but she was, I wouldn't say she was somebody I discovered, but I just was really impressed with Wendy and Lucy. That was the first film by her that I watched this year. It wasn't the kind of film that I'd ever really seen before, like in independent cinema or in American film recently. And I just really loved it. That's why I'm doing an episode about it, right? (laughs) And um, so I do feel like she's one of those directors who is kind of under the radar. Maybe me doing this episode will inspire you to watch more of her work. I don't know. Or maybe you're already a fan. So I just want to give a little bit of background information about Kelly and about the making of the film before I get into my full analysis and share all my thoughts and feelings with you. And I'll try to make this brief. I know I kind of go on sometimes about this stuff, but I do love to do research and I do love to learn about how a film comes into existence. But first, just want to say a few words about Kelly Reichardt. She made her debut in 1994, but she's really struggled in the film industry to make her films. Like she had this really great debut called um, River of Grass. I still need to watch it. She didn't make another feature film for like 12 years. It took a really long time for her. She teaches, she does other stuff like in between making her films, obviously, so that she can make a living. But I think it's a reminder to us that often for women, especially for women in the independent film space, it can be so difficult to get a film off the ground. This is someone who is profoundly talented, who is telling, I think, really important stories in a unique and interesting way. Hopefully, she's able to make the projects and the films that she wants to make in the future. I I can only hope, right? But she was born in Miami, Florida in 1964. And I read read some of this book about her um, called Kelly Reichardt, and it's by Catherine Fusco and Nicole Seymour. And I got a little bit of information from it. And they said that her dad was actually a crime scene photographer and that she started using his camera sort of to make her own work. And that's how she first started, I guess, to get interested in photography or filmmaking, right? And they describe her style this way. And I think it's a really good encapsulation of it. They write write that her style is, is, quote, 
a slow-paced realism that highlights the precariousness of contemporary life and emphasizes the everyday ongoing nature of emergency, unquote. I think that's why I'm drawn to her work. I do like films about class. I like films about working class people or even the poor, the working poor. I think class is a really central facet of American life in the 21st century. And I think as climate change gets worse, as a lot of other things start to happen, we're going to see more more class division and the inequality, the economic inequality in this country is so extreme and appalling and gross. You know, it destroys lives, it kills people. And so I just think class is an important subject that it really tends to get overlooked, ignored in mainstream cinema. And so I think Kelly Reichardt's films about ordinary everyday people, not every single film of hers is about class struggle, obviously, but I just, I like that she focuses on ordinary people and Wendy and Lucy in particular is certainly about class. So I just wanted to give some info about the making of the film. It's based on a short story called Train Choir by John Raymond, and he also co-wrote the script. She's worked with John Raymond before, like on Old Joy, another film of hers that I want to see. Much of this was filmed on uh, in various locations in Portland, Oregon, and that's where John Raymond lives. And so when he was writing the story, he obviously called upon the landscape where he lives right and I think she also worked with him on Meek's Cutoff and even like the Walgreens that they ended up using in the film is like right near him where he lives and it was like the Walgreens that he was thinking about when he wrote the story it's very interesting how Michelle Williams became part of this film you know Michelle Williams is a pretty big star and Kelly Reichardt makes these very small subtle quiet films but Kelly Reichardt is also friends with Todd Haynes and I love Todd Haynes I've covered two of his films on this podcast and you can check out those episodes if you'd like I covered Safe from 1995 and then I covered his film Far From Heaven I'm a huge fan of Todd so Kelly and Todd are good friends and Kelly had seen Michelle in Brokeback Mountain And she was at lunch with Todd Haynes. Kelly was. Kelly and Todd were having lunch together. She'd just seen Michelle Williams in Brokeback Mountain. And Todd Haynes had worked with Michelle in I'm Not There. And so he suggested to Reichardt that Michelle could play the part and that she would be a really good fit for the film. And uh, Todd had just read the script for Wendy and Lucy. And Kelly Reichardt agreed. She thought that Michelle Williams would be perfect for it. And so Todd Haynes passed along the script of Wendy and Lucy to Michelle Williams. And that's how Michelle ended up uh, becoming part of the film and saying yes to it. I I thought that was sort of fascinating that it just sort of happened as a consequence of this lunch that Kelly Reichardt and Todd Haynes had together. The film was shot in about 20 days. It had a budget of $300,000. During the entire shoot, Michelle Williams was not really allowed to wash her hair. She wasn't allowed to like groom herself, like groom her eyebrows, for instance. And she also wasn't allowed uh, makeup. She didn't wear makeup during the filming. In preparation for her role, she slept in the car that's used in the film, the Honda Accord. She slept in that car for about a week in order to prepare for the role and to sort of put herself in the place of this character. The dog in the film belonged to Reichardt and her name really was Lucy. 
Lucy ended up winning the Palm Dog at the Cannes Film Festival, too, so the dog won an award. The pound that you see in the film is actually the Oregon Humane Society. So they used real locations throughout Oregon. Um, You know, the Walgreens and these places were not necessarily adjacent or close to one another. Like they seem to be in the film. They, you know, the Walgreens seems to be across the street from the mechanic place or the body shop, whatever you call it. But in reality, those places were very spread out and miles away from each other. But the film makes it seem like they're right across the street. The inspiration for the film came from two things, really. And Wright Cart talked about it in a few interviews. So she did this interview with Gus Van Sant for Bomb Magazine, and she says, quote, The seeds of Wendy and Lucy happened shortly after Hurricane Katrina, after hearing talk about people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, and hearing the presumption that people's lives were so precarious due to some laziness on their part. John and I were musing on the idea of having no net. Let's say your bootstraps floated away. How do you get out of your situation totally on your own without help from the government? We were watching a lot of Italian neorealism and thinking the themes of those films seemed to ring true for life in America in the Bush years. There's a certain kind of help that society will give and a certain help it won't give, unquote. So the film is born out of the Bush years, eight years that we had to live through with the Bush presidency of, of George W. Bush where we had two wars going on and we were in a post 9-11 world and it's hard to I think it's hard to explain to very young people like in their teens what it was like to live through the Bush years and people think the Trump years have been hard and they have been but those Bush years were difficult as well and we had Katrina during that time so Katrina is also a seed even though it doesn't directly connect to that it's not about somebody who went through Katrina but I think Katrina exposed divisions in our country and inequalities in our country not just of class but obviously most salient of race that that was a very racial thing that happened and the response to it was very racist and but also it was not just about people of color who couldn't leave New Orleans. It was also about poor people who couldn't leave New Orleans. Say if you had a car, say if you had money to leave, you could have gotten out. So there's an economic uh, thing there as well that's intersecting with it. Not just race, but class as well, I think. And she sort of taps into that of the of the class issues that were very much in the forefront after Katrina and during the Bush years and that continue with us And then in an interview with LA Weekly, she talks about the post-Hurricane Katrina stuff. But she also talks about an encounter that she had with a woman. And this is how the, the writer of the LA Weekly story puts it. Quote, but the direction it took was shaped by Wright Card's encounter while scouting for a location in Texas with a middle-aged Mexican woman whose car had blown a tire and landed in a ditch. The woman was in her socks. Her cell phone minutes had expired. She had $20 to her name, and the blown tire was her only spare. Wright Cart drove her to the next exit, paid for the tow truck, came back with her, and marveled as a policeman worried more about her safety than the woman's. I was really impressed with how unhysterical she was and how she expected nothing from authority, says Reichardt. And my own train of thought was, how deep do I get into this? 
Can I buy my way out of it? It made me realize that's what this film is about. What is our obligation? Unquote. And she talked about that encounter in another interview. Everything that I'm referring to will be in the show notes of the episode. All of my sources and stuff. So she had this encounter with this Mexican woman who had just no money to her name hardly. And her her vehicle had blown a tire and she was struggling, you know, and Reitkart was trying to help her. But at the same time, she's sort of like the Walgreens security guard. Like, well, how deep am I going to get into this? Like, this is someone she doesn't know. And I do think the film raises important questions about our obligation to each other, especially to strangers, especially to people we don't know. Obviously, this encounter was also racial in nature in the way that the police officer did not want to help the Mexican woman, that he was more concerned about the white woman, Kelly Reichardt, in that situation. I think that says a lot about our country, obviously. And it also made me wonder, like, what if the film had had, um, like, a woman of color in the main role? Obviously, Michelle Williams is white. There would have been a different dynamic in the way that people interacted with her. And it might have been interesting to add that dynamic to it. Kelly Reichardt chose not to, and that's fine. But I did. it did make me think more about the racial or ethnic component of something like that, of what would it be like to be in Wendy's position as a woman of color, where people might not be so helpful, where, hell, the police might be called on you, really. I mean, Wendy... I mean, Wendy gets arrested for the shoplifting, but not for necessarily being like a vagrant or like sleeping in her car or things like that. And I feel like maybe a person of color, a woman of color may have had to deal with that of people being suspicious of her, of not trying to help her quite as much. Not that Wendy gets a ton of help. (laughs) She's pretty much on her own, but obviously there would be a racial dynamic there that's not in the film. So I thought it was interesting that sort of one of the seeds for the film was her interaction with this Mexican woman, of her seeing a woman in a precarious position and not really knowing what to do and and feeling a bit helpless in all of it. Like, she can't change how the police officer is acting, obviously. And the lack of help for that Mexican woman, the lack of care, and it obviously resonates now as well with um, like the really ugly things happening around immigration and the the views of Mexican people, of people from Central America and other places and immigrants and stuff like that. So that story was very interesting to me. And just finally, a few words on Michelle Williams. I think this is So far from what I've seen from her, probably my favorite performance that she's done next to like Brokeback Mountain. And I'll talk more about her performance as I'm talking about the film in depth. But this, it's important to note that this film was like a pivotal thing in Michelle's life. And it came at an important time in her life. Wendy and Lucy was like really her first starring role. The first film where she's like in every scene and she's carrying it. And she's the main character. At this point, she'd already worked with a lot of big names like Charlie Kaufman in Synecdoche, New York, Martin Scorsese uh, in Shutter Island, and Todd Haynes in I'm Not There. But she wasn't the main character of those films, right? All those characters actually sort of are centering men, although I haven't seen I'm Not There. 
But Shutter Island definitely centers men, and so does Synecdoche, New York, with uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. But it's been years since I've seen some of these films. So Wendy and Lucy was a big deal for her. Like, she's carrying the film. And this was a challenging role for her. She's sort of worried that she might be too famous for it. It's also a role that's, like, really interior and subtle and I thought it was interesting that Kelly Reichardt recommended some films for Michelle Williams to watch in preparation for her role. Kelly talked about this in an interview with Flavor Wire. She suggested that Michelle watch Mouchette and some other films. Um, quote, I wanted her to be comfortable with the idea of a really emotionally inward person that didn't have a bird's eye view on her situation. That can make an actor nervous to feel like they're doing nothing. So I showed her Mouchette, Mike Lee's Bleak Moments, the second part of Sechajit Ray's Apu trilogy that's more focused on the mother, Reckless Moment, the Max Ophels film. I just showed her films with female characters that were holding it in, but weren't socially inept. They also weren't people that would easily win over an audience. There's such a sort of zeitgeist now. I call it Gilmore Girls Syndrome that's bled into films. This super talky, clever female character, unquote. And I think this is a strength of the film is the inwardness of the character. But there are moments when emotion sort of ruptures and spills out. And obviously I'll talk about that. But like the scene in the woods where the man almost attacks her and she goes back to the gas station bathroom and just has like a meltdown. I think throughout the film she's you can tell the inside she is scared or that she is tired or she's coming apart a little bit. <laughs> like you can see it in Michelle's eyes just the the worry that gnaws at her and the stress and all of that. And I kind of like that she's not overly talkative. I like that she's not like a likable character or something. This film definitely predates the whole the whole debate about likable or unlikable women characters, right? Um, I think that started with Gone Girl, didn't it? Of like female protagonists being unlikable. And I, I wouldn't say I like embrace this idea that all female characters should be unlikable or something. I don't. I don't care either way. I'm not looking for a character to necessarily be likable or unlikable or relatable. I just, or, or strong. I'm looking more for female characters who are just complicated and complex and maybe messy and contradictory and, you know, things like that. Just human and authentic. That's more what I'm in search of. And I think there's something really interesting about Wendy in this film where she is really inward. She is really distanced and separated from other people. And you can feel that. And yet Michelle's performance is able to convey the her, her inner life, I think. This film came out at a really difficult time for Michelle Williams. Heath Ledger had died in January of 2008, and then Wendy and Lucy was released in December of 2008, and it was obviously a very traumatic event. And some of the interviews I read, they do ask her about it sometimes, so at times she was asked by the press about it and had to, add, had to answer those questions, and 
She always did it with a lot of grace and always maintained her privacy. And she's done that for many years now, ever since it happened. Her main focus has been to raise her child and to live her life. That's something fascinating about Michelle Williams, I think, is the way that she goes in and out of different kinds of film productions, right? Like she can be in the big blockbusters and then she can be in a Kelly Reichardt film. And she's been in several of Kelly's films, including Meek's Cutoff and including Certain Women, which I hope to watch soon. So she goes in and out of those worlds, right? She can be on the red carpet looking really glamorous and then she can be Wendy, this young woman just struggling and desperate and um, trying to hold it all together and she does both really beautifully she's a rare actress in that way Michelle just gives a tremendous performance I will definitely be talking more about that as I talk about the film and now that's what I would like to transition into is talking about Wendy and Lucy I know that those of you listening do not care about the order of the episodes, um, but I do think about the relationship between films when I choose to cover them. Right now, as I do episodes, I actually have a theme every month, and then I do two films that are connected to that theme, and in a way, I almost view them as possible double features for you, you know, as films that have some kind of relationship or some kind of theme in common. For the month that I'm doing this episode, it's July 2019, I chose to focus on women uh, who are dealing with like financial precarity. So the other film before this episode that I covered was the Dardan Brothers Two Days One Night from 2014 and it stars Marion Cotillard and then I chose this film Wendy and Lucy to pair with it. So if you see Wendy and Lucy and you're wondering well what's something maybe kind of similar to it you could definitely go with Two Days One Night or even maybe pair it with the Dardan Brothers film Rosetta which I was able to watch recently that I really liked. Maybe I'll do an episode on Rosetta one day (laughs) or I'd also say maybe Agnes Varda's Vagabond, and I'll talk a bit about Vagabond um, in this episode. I have an episode about it, (laughs) about Vagabond. I I think those would be good to pair with this in some way where you have women characters who are struggling, there's class issues, things like that. But the thing that struck me about Michelle Williams and Marion Cotillard is that with both films, Two Days, One Night, and this one, we have a famous actress a global sort of superstar actress who's cast in an, in a role about an ordinary woman. And I feel like both actresses do such a superb job of embodying their characters so authentically, truthfully, and beautifully. I know that Marion Cotillard certainly does that in Two Days, One Night, and I really think Michelle Williams' performance in Wendy and Lucy is phenomenal, and it elevates the film, carries the film... I don't think it would be the same film without her. So that's just something I wanted to to comment on is the way that both of these films take women who are very well known, very beautiful. They are able to become totally different women. And I know it seems obvious. Well, that's what actors do. That's what acting is. But I don't know if all actors are able to do that, really. I think we live in an age where you don't see a lot of actors playing ordinary people anymore. You know, they're playing superheroes. They're playing larger-than-life action heroes. 
you don't see a lot of these actors or actresses having to play an ordinary person like me and you. So I do think Michelle Williams pulls it off very well. I really do. So Wendy and Lucy came out in 2008, <laughs> as you know, and I've told you everything, you know, the backstory, some of the making of it, how it came to be. And now I just want to talk about this film. It's, it's a moving film in a lot of ways. Rewatching it for this episode, I saw it like a few months ago. It's not one of those films where I saw years ago and I'm just sort of going off that memory. I found that watching it a second time was, it was even better for me. And I noticed things, I noticed like the visual beauty of the film. I noticed the quiet moments, the way that Kelly Reichardt finds moments of beauty within the film. And if you watch it again, or if you've seen it several times, you'll notice it as well. The way she'll focus on a tree, the way she'll focus on like um, birds in the sky, the trees, things like that. And it made it like a richer experience. This film begins and ends with trains. We see trains on, on train tracks. And it brings to mind the fact that the film's based on that short story, Train Choir by John Raymond. And at the end, of course, Wendy will get on a train in order to leave that area. Trains, there's always a romance about them, right? And there's almost something very um, democratic about them, like anybody can hop on one. They are vehicles for movement, right? Because by the end of the film, Wendy does not have any transportation. And so it's a free, easy way for her to get from point A to point B. And so it's interesting how trains will recur throughout the film. It's really amazing to me in general how this film is only about an hour and 15 minutes. It's a slim film, and yet it's very dense in themes and in things that it looks at, from, you know, financial instability to our relationship with animals to, um how we interact with each other as human beings, how we help each other, how we hurt each other, loneliness, a woman on her own, a woman who's vulnerable. So there's so much going on in this film and I'm going to try to get to all those themes because when I'm watching these films, I, I write down sort of the plot and things that are happening and then I like to write down themes that come to mind for me and thoughts and like what a scene, like what it makes me think about, how it affects me. And that's always what I try to convey in these episodes. I love how this film starts with Wendy and Lucy, obviously. We see, it's like a tracking shot, actually. And we see Wendy and Lucy like out in the woods playing. They're just playing together. And we hear this humming that Wendy will do throughout the film. It's at the beginning, it's at the end, it's even when she's in the the Jack's grocery store where she does the shoplifting. She's sort of humming to herself. Throughout the film, she will hum to herself. It's almost like this lullaby or something that she's singing to herself. And the character of Wendy is so interesting in a lot of ways to me. She's enigmatic, I think. There's a mystery about her. I actually love that Kelly Reichardt left out the backstory for her. I love that. It reminded me a bit of Abbas Kurostami's film Taste of Cherry, which I have an episode about. (laughs) Y'all, I've done almost 100 episodes at this point. I have a vast archive (laughs) 
This is like my growing archive of cinemania and my cinema passions and obsessions. So I love Taste of Cherry and a big thing about that movie, it's about this man driving around. He wants to commit suicide and he wants somebody to bury his body after he commits suicide. He wants a person to come and check on him to see if he is dead and then to bury him basically. We don't understand why he wants to kill himself. We know very little about his life but I like that in that film because it allows us to sort of project our own things onto him right and you just have to use your imagination and I think Wendy is very similar where she's like a blank slate in some ways. You don't know where she's come from. You you know where she's going, but you don't know where she's come from. And her name's Wendy Carroll. That's her full name. And she's from Indiana. We find that out. She's going to Alaska. She's on her way to Alaska. She wants to work at the canneries where it's like some kind of seafood thing, I guess. I don't know a lot about the canneries in Alaska, but apparently you can make a good living at it. You can tell that she's someone that doesn't have a lot of money. She obsessively keeps track of her money. She keeps her money on a belt around her waist. Her vehicle is old. She has a Honda Accord from the 1980s. She does not have like a new car or something and her clothes don't even look particularly new. Her clothes look kind of old. I'll say a word about her appearance and her clothes in a moment. So she's this person where we don't know where she's come from very much. You know, we don't know what has led her on this journey to Alaska. Like how many young women do this? She looks like she's in her early 20s, right? Why is she going to Alaska? Why is she doing this? This is pretty brazen. This is actually pretty bold. But she is not a bold character. She's not an outgoing character. She's a very introverted, reserved, contemplative character who's much more inner, who's much more inside herself. And I relate to that because that's how I am out in the world. I mean, on this podcast, I get really personal and emotional and all of that. But out in the real world, I'm not like that. I'm very shy, very reserved. I don't talk a lot. I'm very introverted and things like that. I'm a lot like Wendy. I'm very separate from people, distanced from people. I'm probably prickly, really. <laughs> I mean, I don't think people like me in particular. I'm standoffish. I guess I'm very protective of myself. Maybe I see Wendy that way too. Like she's a protective person. I love the enigma of her and the mystery of her. And I think it's a strength of the film that we don't know her entire backstory. Like what caused her to leave? Is she running from something? Is there's something that happened that she needed to get away from. We don't know. I mean, Kelly Reichardt and Michelle Williams know. They created sort of a backstory for her. And Kelly talks about it in interviews. They created a backstory, but I kind of like as a viewer not having one and just imagining her going on this journey for whatever reason. But obviously it's rooted in an economic need that she needs a job that's going to pay her better. And she has stopped in Oregon. That's where she, that's where all this happens. It's like this little town, this little depressed, economically depressed area of Oregon. That's on her way to Alaska. So immediately at the beginning of the film, it's Wendy and Lucy, right? She's with her dog. She is a woman alone in a lot of ways. But at the same time, she's not completely alone because she has Lucy. 
And that relationship is probably what has sustained her through the entire journey. And it's what's so heartbreaking about the film is that once she loses Lucy, things sort of start to accelerate for her and really start to unravel and fall apart. And I think Lucy is like a stabilizing force for her, something that keeps her going. And I can totally relate to that because I have a dog and his name's Boomer. And we've had him for about nine years now. I mean, I'm 30 years old now. I just turned 30. I had my birthday. Like, this dog has been with me a third of my life at this point. You know, he's almost 10 years old. And he's really important to me. And he's important to my mom. My mom and I have been through a lot in life. We've been through a lot of loss, including the death of my father when I was 16 years old. And it happened in 2006. We didn't get Boomer until 2010. She actually got the dog because I went to college in 2010. And um, my mom and I are really, really close. If longtime listeners know it, because I talk about her, we're just extremely close with each other because of all of the, the loss and the grief and the trauma that we've been through together. And she's my best friend. She's my whole life. I live with her. She's just everything to me. And I talk about our relationship a lot on this podcast not too much because it's private, you know, but I adore her and love her deeply. When I left for college, you know, that created a big void for her and she went and got Boomer. (laughs) And I think Boomer has replaced me at this point. If any of you follow me on social media, you may have seen pictures of him. I do share pictures of him sometimes on Instagram, like in my stories and stuff like that. But he's a really sweet, wonderful dog. But he, as much as I love him, like my mom's relationship with him is incredibly intense. Like my mom's been through so much and this dog is like one of her biggest comforts in life. She's just obsessed with him. He's like her shadow. Everywhere she goes, Boomer goes. Like they're just inseparable. I think he is what keeps her going sometimes almost more than me. Like (laughs) she might love him more than me on some days. Okay. I'm not like the easiest person to deal with or live with sometimes, but she loves Boomer just so deeply. So the relationship between Wendy and Lucy, I think a lot of us can relate to it of this pet, this animal who just brings love, unconditional love. That's the thing. That's what a pet brings to you. Everybody should have access to that. Like, I hate, I hate later on in the, the film when she steals the dog food, when Andy, that little shit face Andy, who I hate, (laughs) I think we all hate Andy, right? Saying that, oh, if you can't afford dog food, you shouldn't have a dog. And I'm like, shut your mouth, kid. (laughs) I cannot stand him. I'll talk, I will talk more about Andy. Okay. Shut up, kid. You don't know what life is like, okay? Teenage uh, jerk. (laughs) I'm not good at put downs. Actually, no, like we should all have access to pets. Like it's cruel that so only the rich should have pets. Only the rich should have access to that kind of love and, and all of that. Wendy has Lucy as a support system, as as a friend, as everything, right? And you can feel that immediately. You can feel the love and the bond between the two of them. And yet by the end of the film, they're together at the beginning. And then by the end, their paths will diverge. They will take drastically different paths by the end of this film. And what's sad is that in a lot of ways, 
the dog is cared for more than Wendy is. That at the end of the film, Wendy has has to keep going. She has to leave. She has no home, no safety net, no anything. And then Lucy, Lucy has a home. Lucy has somebody to take care of her. While for Wendy, the future is unknown and uncertain. And we don't know what's going to happen to Wendy. But we know where Lucy ends up, right? It's open-ended for Wendy in a lot of ways. When we first see Wendy, for much of the film, she wears like a plaid shirt, a blue hoodie, brown shorts, tennis shoes. She has this short haircut. She has almost defeminized herself. I don't even know if that's a word. And I wonder if she did it on purpose because she's a woman alone on the road, except for Lucy. Lucy's maybe her protection too, right? Lucy's there for love, but Lucy could also be a protection for her. And it reminded me a lot of Vagabond. There's this character, her name's Mona, and played by Sandrine Bonaire. And this is my favorite Agnes Varda film. And like Wendy, she's sort of a drifter. She's without a home and she's on the road she hitchhikes she goes around very much living on the margins in a lot of ways and she wears like this bulky leather jacket and jeans her hair's unwashed her teeth are yellow like she's not able to groom herself and stuff like that the way that wendy um wendy struggles with that too like the only time she gets to have a bath or to clean herself is when she goes into the gas station bathroom throughout the film and that'll be an important space later on when i get to that point so like mona wendy does not want to call attention to herself and maybe she's trying to make herself invisible um she almost looks tomboyish you know in a lot of ways and in an interview michelle williams talked about playing a character and she she used an interesting phrase where she said that she was like outside femininity outside of femininity So she's playing this character who is a woman, you know, is a young woman, but who's not portrayed in the traditional way that young women are, like with makeup and pretty clothes. And for so many women, you know, it's about making yourself beautiful and attractive. And women are very much defined by the way that they look, by the way that men react to them. And Wendy is outside of that. Wendy is, is, like I said, like... She's living a life much more similar to what a man or a boy would do because she's on the road. She's going to Alaska. This is something that you would imagine like a guy doing in a way. It's more of a masculine pursuit, I would think. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to do stereotypes or anything, but it's not quite as common for a woman to be on the road in this way and to be traveling on her own. And I mean, I'm sure that's happening more. And with a woman on the road, a woman on her own, there are certain dangers that come with it that do not come for men. You know, men are not going to have to worry about being sexually assaulted, for instance. And that is something that Wendy has to deal with in the film. I just thought her look was really interesting. I mean, it could just be a natural way that she dresses. It probably is. But it also serves a function to make her, to defeminize her, you know, to make her less attractive, I guess you could say. To make her invisible, to not bring attention to herself. And maybe she can blend in better too. So that her interactions with men are not really defined by, like, them wanting her. You know what I mean? 
like with the Walgreens security guard or the mechanic, right? It's just very different. And so it's, uh, I just thought that was an interesting part of the film. So Wendy is, comes to Oregon. She's stopping. She's just passing through. She says that throughout the film. And Wendy is someone like she has really planned this trip out. She has her notebook. She has everything planned out like the money she's going to spend. She has everything planned. But of course, we know that life doesn't work that way. Life is chaotic. Life, <laughs> life comes at you and unplanned things happen all the time. And it's just never that simple. And I love how this film is exploring that. Like, here is someone who did plan, who seems really responsible, right? Who, you know, she's got her money and she's got all of this and she's got it worked out. And then it, the, the powerful thing about this film is how it shows that, like, one thing can completely change your life. It's like this domino effect. One thing. And then that one thing gets bigger and bigger and everything starts to unravel because that happened to me. That happened to my life. When I was around 13, my dad got injured at work. And up to this point, my dad had always been really healthy. He worked, he mainly worked at like warehouses, unloading trucks, like big 18 wheeler trucks. It was like, you know, it's a difficult job working in a warehouse. He always did really physical work and he was always in really good shape and a healthy guy. And he got this injury um, on the job at work. After that happened, his health just spiraled. And our lives spiraled because he was unable to make a living anymore. He had to get on disability, government disability. And that took a while to get. And it was just like all this stuff happened. And then his health went downhill. And then just so much happened. My mom was having to take him to a lot of doctor's appointments. And she lost her job. And then so it's like this domino effect happens. And especially when you were like us, you know, you work in class. You don't have a lot of resources. You don't have a lot of family to help you. Wendy does not have family to help her. She's pretty much on her own. So my dad getting that one injury at work, because there's no safety net really in this country, it just unraveled our lives. And then a few years later, he ended up dying due to circumstances I'd rather not go into. But his death was really preventable. And he did not have access to the resources and the medical care that he needed because we don't have universal health care in this country. We don't have a single payer system. The people that get health care or good health care tend to be the people with money and the people who are rich. So my life was completely destroyed by one accident that my dad got at work. One thing, you know, uh, we were working class. I mean, we were not rich by any means. But we made ends meet up, you know, before my dad got sick. Like we were able to exist, you know. We weren't struggling to the point where it was, you know, really bad. But then after his injury, you know, things just got worse and worse. And then they got even even worse after he died. So it's like I have ever since I was about 13 years old lived with this idea and the knowledge that all it takes is just one bit of bad luck. It, 
I promise you, and I get really mad at people who see the world in black and white and who judge people who are struggling because I've had relatives who were very judgmental. I've had a lot of people really judgmental of my life and, and of other people and who have no idea what it's like to live through what I've lived through. They didn't go through something like this. They've had um, a comfortable life. They've always had access to health care. They've always had food in the, on the table. They've always had everything given to them and they've never had to struggle a day in their life. And then they want to judge people like me or judge the working class, the working poor, the poor, the disabled, right? The, the downtrodden. And these people have never lived that life, never walked a day in my shoes. I promise you it can happen to you. It can. And it's terrifying. We like to believe that we can control everything, that life is in our control. And what I learned at 13 was that nothing's in your control. Very little's in your control. And there are systems outside of you. There are powers outside of you. All it takes is one thing, an injury on the job, a car accident. For Wendy, it's her car breaking down, her car basically dying. That is the incident for Wendy that completely upends her life and leads to a really tragic thing, which is losing her dog. To her, that's a tragedy. I absolutely believe that because she's probably never going to see Lucy again. At the end, you know, she says, oh, I'll come back for you. I don't believe it. <laughs> I think she, I think it's over that it's over with with Lucy. So no matter how much planning she did, she got herself in a situation where she literally had no control over it. And that's what Kelly Breitkart wanted to explore. This whole idea of, oh, you can just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Anybody can be successful in this country. And if you're not, then it's your fault. Because the thing that Americans have to deal with that other countries don't is this absurd idea of the American dream this American myth that I like to call it, that if you just work hard enough, you can have a great life. It doesn't exist. It's not real because there are literally millions of people struggling day after day after day because the, their jobs don't pay enough or they have disabilities and issues with their bodies or this or that. It's like, no, it doesn't exist. You know, there are plenty of people that work hard and they are living in poverty right? Like it's absurd to even say something like that. But we have to live with that mythology here in the United States that and the flip side of that mythology is that if you are not doing well in this country, then it is your fault. That's the flip side of it is that oh, if you work hard, you'll do great. Well, if you're not doing great, then you must be lazy and worthless and all of this that you must not be working hard enough. And you must be a bad person or you must be lazy or it must be your fault. And of course, Wendy and Lucy explodes all of that. Because this is a this is a young woman dealing with something outside of her control. She doesn't have a support system. She has nowhere to go and she's just doing her best to try to get through it. But her car dies. She parks in a Walgreens park parking lot so that she can sleep at night on her way to Alaska. She's just passing through and when she wakes up in the morning she's woken up by the Walgreens security guard who will recur throughout the film. He will actually come to sort of be a friend to her. One of the few people to show real kindness towards her and that's a beautiful thing. But he knocks on the window and wakes her up and says you can't park here. 
you know, you just can't park in the Walgreens parking lot. We have to get this, get your car off. And she goes to turn it on and it won't start. Her car is dead. So he helps her get it on the street. And then her odyssey or her ordeal, really, her ordeal begins of trying to get the car fixed, finding out it can't be fixed, trying to take care of Lucy. She has run out of food for Lucy. She has a bit of water and then she has like this empty dog food, uh, this bag of dog food. And at first she goes to collect some cans and take them to recycling, but it's just a small bag that she collects and she doesn't go through with it. She just gives them to a man in a wheelchair because the line is so long. And so she goes into this really small grocery store. It's like a mom and pop grocery store. I think it's called Jack's. She leashes up Lucy outside of it so that she can go in. And I had the impression that she probably thought, oh, well, this is just a little grocery store. They're probably not going to have security cameras and all kinds of stuff like that. I also got the sense that maybe she had shoplifted before, right? Uh, Maybe she had done this a few times because her finances are very tight. She does not have like thousands of dollars on her or something. Maybe she has a few hundred. I'm not sure the exact amount. So she's probably tried to find ways to like like make her money last and you know the thing about Wendy is she comes off really smart to me like she's on her own on the road but she seems like really self-sufficient so I saw parts of myself in Wendy and then of course other parts I know I'm not gonna like go drive up to Alaska I would never do that and if you think about the kind of person you'd have to be to do that like you gotta be really I don't know like brave to do that to just leave Indiana and drive up to Alaska to work in a cannery like to me that is that's something pretty brazen and unusual for a young woman to do I guess I'm the kind of person that needs like security and comfort and you know and plus I have health issues I have I have physical health issues and I also have I struggle with depression and anxiety So for me to just do something like that would be impossible and unthinkable. For Wendy, and I'm sorry if I I call her Lucy at some point. Like, I don't know. It might happen. (laughs) Wendy and Lucy. um, I get them mixed up. But Wendy, but she does that. Like, she, you have to be really confident in yourself, I think. You got to be self-sufficient. You got to know how to, like do stuff you gotta know how to like deal with a vehicle and take care of it and and fend for yourself and you gotta know how to take care of yourself out in the world so there's like a toughness about Wendy for me even though I think that she's also really fragile and vulnerable at times like she's tough it's it's no big deal for her to just go sleep in the woods to me that would be like demoralizing like I would feel like oh god like I I would just be horrified to sleep in the woods. Like, I'm terrified of insects and stuff. Like, oh God, what's going to get on me, right? Like, the, the ground would, like, kill my body and my back. I just can't even imagine sleeping out in the woods. But she has no problem with it. She's very self-sufficient. She knows how to take care of herself and and how to make the best out of whatever circumstance she finds herself in. I don't. I wouldn't say she comes off like an optimistic person, but she comes off like a really capable person to me. Whereas I would just be falling apart, you know, like a blubbering mess if some of this stuff happened to me. Right? Um, I'm a weakling. I'm very weak. So she goes into this grocery store and goes around 
and take some items, including a can of dog food. What she doesn't realize is that she's been watched. She's been spotted. And as she goes to leave, little old Andy, little old Andy, um, comes and grabs her arm very forcefully and takes her to the back where his boss is. He checks her tote bag. They find that can of dog food. And I loved that little touch of Andy wearing the cross necklace. I loved that. I mean, brilliant touch about sort of the hypocrisy that you see a lot in this country, like this Christian hypocrisy the this judgment and really getting so far away from the teachings of Jesus like Jesus would have been for the poor and the needy and then you see a lot of these Christians like I know these people they live all over the south all over where I live (laughs) I can't stand it who you know go to church every Sunday and Wednesday and then treat other people terribly think that they are so holier than thou and better than everybody else andy is actually a really cruel person and it's like a it's a cavalier cruelty it's like a nonchalant cruelty it's a cruelty in the name of like the rules oh well if somebody shoplifts we have to call the police he's very insistent about it and then he makes his little comment you know if a person can't afford dog food they shouldn't have a dog He is incredibly smug, entitled, a person for whom the world is black and white. There are no shades of gray. He's got to follow the rules. And if Wendy's down on her luck, if she's struggling, well, that's not his problem. He's got to enforce the rules, right? Because most people would have just let it slide. Most people would have just been like, obviously, this is a desperate person or this is somebody struggling and they would have let it go but not not old andy he can't do that little teenage andy who is such an asshole Ugh. so andy gets to call the police on her and she ends up going to jail and i thought it was really interesting the scenes of wendy at the jail because what occurred to me throughout a lot of this film is wendy having to navigate bureaucracy and how maddening, frustrating, stressful, and mind-numbing it is. She's got to go through the bureaucracy of the jail where, you know, they take her fingerprints and they photograph her and then she's got to be booked and she's got to sit in the cell for however long, right? And then there's also the bureaucracy of the pound where she goes there and then, well, they have to call her and then she's got to fill out this form and this and this and that it's just dehumanizing it's like an experience of dehumanization when you have to deal with bureaucracy or you have to deal with these different institutions of power these are places that have power over you and you're sort of rendered powerless by them and helpless by them but especially when she's at the jail that's a very dehumanizing experience and the whole time you know she's worried about lucy because Lucy's leashed up outside of this grocery store. And she eventually, you know, she pays the $50 fine. That eats into her finances. She was not expecting that. And when she goes back to the store, Lucy's gone. And I love the scene where when she's looking for Lucy, she comes across Andy again. 
But she's looking for Lucy and she comes across him. And I love how she gets kind of sassy and she's like, I hope you're happy. And then you see him getting into the car like his mom or dad probably came to pick him up. She's like so sarcastic and she's like, good night. And then she's yelling at the car. Your son's a real hero. Like I love how Wendy like if I were Wendy, I would have been like cussing this kid out. Like, you are the reason. Andy is the reason for all of this happening, <laughs> except for the car dying. But when, but um, Andy is a big part of this. Andy had a choice. That's the thing. To me, this film, it's really rich and complex. I love it, as even as I'm talking about it now. She didn't have a choice with the car dying, right? But the way people treat us, there are choices involved in that. And the film, I think, shows the best and the worst of human nature. I don't know if that was Kelly Reichardt's goal. I don't know. But, like, the Walgreens security guard, and I'll talk more about him, he actually chooses to show kindness to her. Andy chooses to show cruelty. This is a film about how we can help each other or how we can really hurt each other. Wendy does choose to steal. You know, we have to hold her responsible for that. She makes that choice, absolutely. But Andy chooses to criminalize her for it. He chooses to involve the police, which really drastically alters her life. And a lot of what happens is the direct consequence of one person's cruelty. And that's Andy. So, you know, when Kelly Reichardt in that interview talked about what is our obligation to each other, that to me is maybe the central idea of this film, is what is our obligation to one another in everyday life? I get really annoyed at like all these positive stories that come out when there's a big disaster. Like it happened even after Katrina, right? And after all these hurricanes, after tornadoes, after floods, and all these things. Oh, look at the way people help each other. Look at the way people band together. Oh, you know, humanity's really good to each other. And to me, it just completely erases the way that we're complete jerks to one another on a daily basis and how there's a lot of cruelty in the world. I mean, people can't even drive without being assholes most of the time. Like every day we go through stressful stuff because other people make our lives so stressful because other people are cruel and hurtful and selfish and you know, like people can't even drive in a decent way, right? People can't really be decent to each other like on a daily basis. So it doesn't really help too much to do it after some horrific disaster when we can't even do it on like a daily basis. We can't even be kind or decent, right? Like it just annoys the hell out of me when I hear stuff like that. And this is a good example you know, this is like person to person here. She's right in front of Andy and he chooses to call the police on her. And we see that all the time. A lot of these stories that come out, especially with people of color, like the one that comes to mind is the recent one where a family left Dollar General and their daughter was accused of taking a doll on the way out. And I don't think it was anybody who worked at the store that called the police, but it must have been like somebody else, I guess, at the store or in the parking lot. And the police surrounded them. The police arrested them, got very violent with them just over a little girl stealing a doll or something. And then the police said, oh, well, they shoplifted like that justified anything that they did. 
like the way that certain behaviors become criminalized and the way that the police are involved in them or think of like the Starbucks thing those two two black men were in a Starbucks and they were just sitting there and they hadn't bought anything and so the the person working there called the police like people are so quick to call the police over things that are not that's not necessary to call the police for (laughs) it's ridiculous and it always leads to these really terrible videos that you see online and of course it it predominantly happens to people of color where they have to worry about that whatever they are doing they're going to be automatically criminalized or seen as criminals now obviously wendy does not have to deal with that because she is a white woman but andy calling the police like that's what it reminded me of is like how people are so easily criminalized nowadays right like we just don't even know how to be humane to each other anymore and we involve the police and stuff or or things get really violent easily for really no reason if andy had not called the police then she wouldn't have lost lucy she had no control over the car but andy andy could have made a different decision he could have chosen not to call the police not to criminalize her but to see that this is someone down on their luck this is someone struggling and to have kindness and humanity towards her and instead she wasn't shown that so he made that choice to be inhumane towards her while the Walgreens security guard made a different choice and we can make different choices that seems to be a message to me like we can try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes we can try to be kinder and not be an Andy do not be an Andy and now Lucy's gone and the rest of the film is really about Wendy trying to find Lucy and her desperate search for this dog i think things really start to change for wendy once lucy goes missing you can tell that wendy is like holding on by a thread she's been to jail her car won't start the mechanic place um like the body shop or whatever nearby is not open it takes her forever to finally get the car in there and then she's basically told that it can't be salvaged that it's going to cost more for her to fix whatever's wrong with the car than what it's worth and and she should just junk it because and she doesn't have the money to fix it anyways she doesn't have thousands of dollars so just gradually things are spiraling starts with the car not starting and then you know her shoplifting the dog food ending up in jail lucy going missing it's like this series of of unfortunate events right it's like this series of bad luck and how one thing compiles it just compiles over and over and everything starts to compound and everything starts to unravel for her but at least up to that point she had lucy she had her dog she had a companion she wasn't going through it completely alone but without lucy she just seems a lot more lost and fragile frantic and worried she wants to find lucy and that's how her attention shifts and it's just a reminder i think that our pets can ground us they can keep us you know going they can comfort us when we feel lost out of control and when we lose them we can feel very out of control and lost without these wonderful companions in our lives wendy's wendy's loneliness starts to really come out and magnify she tries to call her sister and i guess her brother-in-law i I guess because they're both on the phone talking 
and she lets them know that she's broken down in Oregon and her oh gosh Wendy seems like she has my kind of uh relatives but her sister says well what does she want us to do like yeah she has the support system of like nothing she has no support system they certainly don't have any money to help her out so she's very alone in the world and you can tell that Wendy has figured out how to just get by on her own um, without the help of other people and I think I think that one exchange with her sister and brother-in-law explains a lot and explains why she's so distant from other people like with the Walgreens security guard you know she's still he tries to help her You know, because when she goes to the pound to look for Lucy, Lucy's not there, but she needs like contact information and he offers his cell phone to her. He even told her how to get to the pound. Remember, he gives her directions and he says that she can use his phone number as a contact number so that the pound can call him and so she won't have to make so many trips there every day. He actually does a lot for her. You know, at first you kind of dislike him because he's he's waking her up he won't she's trying to sleep right that's how we first meet him and he tells her she can't be in the Walgreens parking lot and we kind of like don't like him for that like why are you making a big fuss who's gonna care like is somebody gonna come by and see that her car's in the parking lot but he has to enforce the rules if you think about it at the beginning he's enforcing the rules the way that Andy is enforcing the rules at the grocery store Like, oh, you can't be in the parking lot. But the difference between him and Andy is that his humanity comes out. Where he sees that this is a young woman who is struggling. And he sometimes bends those rules. He talks to her when he's working and things like that. And shares his cell phone with her. And things that, you know, he he goes beyond what the average person would. Certainly beyond what Andy did. (laughs) That's for sure. But she still is kind of distant and you can tell that it's hard for her to accept his help. It's hard for her to, I guess, not be independent. It's hard for her to be dependent on other people. And maybe, maybe for a lot of her life, she's just learned to try to get by on her own and to survive on her own. Maybe that's always what she's done, what she's had to do. So to me, this is a film about loneliness. I know that Kelly Reichardt insisted to Michelle Williams that um, Wendy is not alone because she has Lucy, right? But for like half the film, Lucy's gone and Wendy is alone. Wendy is searching for Lucy. That's the heartbreaking part of it. At first, she's not alone. She does have this dog, but for a lot of the film, she doesn't. By the end of the film, she is alone she can't take Lucy with her. Once Wendy is able to get the mechanic to take her car in, she now doesn't have a place to like sleep. At this point, she doesn't know that the car is like a total loss. She learns that near the end of the film. So at this point, she, the mechanic takes the car in, they're going to look at it, and then she's completely on her own and she goes to the woods because she can't sleep in the car anymore and she goes near these train tracks the train recurs it's so interesting the role that the woods play in this film it's like the woods are both like a refuge for her but they're also a danger especially for a woman and that's what we see it's a place for her to escape but it's also very secluded 
and there's the possibility of violence and violation within that space. And women are always negotiating that fear as they go through these different spaces. Like her car in a lot of ways was her protection. Lucy in a lot of ways was her protection as a woman on her own on the road. And both of those things are stripped away from her. She does not have the car to protect her and she does not have the dog to protect her. To me, that's one of the more frightening aspects of this film is just how quickly she is stripped of every kind of protection that she had accumulated. And so we have this near assault scene that night when she's sleeping in the woods, how like this man comes along and is like hovering over her talking incoherently to himself and he tells her not to look at him and she is in very real danger there is a huge amount of suspense in this in this scene where you're like is he going to attack her is he going to rob her we don't know uh but he doesn't he does eventually leave but the the brilliance i think of this scene and what makes it so frightening is that we only see wendy in close-up like a lot of her face is covered because she has like a blanket and the blanket is covering a lot of her face and you just kind of see her eyes and the upper part of her face and we can just see the fear in her eyes and you can almost see in her mind her going through what is going to happen like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? I don't know how to describe it. Like, that's Michelle Williams' performance right there. That is the brilliance of her performance is the, you feel the reality of that, of what is going to happen to her. And you feel the terror that has seized her body in that moment of here is this strange man hovering over me. Is he going to take my money? Is he going to hurt me? what is going to happen here i mean i honestly can't even fathom it being in that situation and when he does leave she runs to the gas station uh goes into the bathroom this is the gas station bathroom that she's been using throughout the film to clean herself and things like that and it's once she gets in that bathroom that she starts to break down crying up to that point she had not let herself go there, I don't think. She's just seized by the fear of that experience. And for a lot of the film, she is stoic. Like you can see in her eyes when she is desperate and when she's struggling, you can see the exhaustion. Michelle Williams is brilliant in conveying a lot through her face, but she hasn't been overly emotional throughout the film. But that gas station bathroom scene when she starts to break down crying, I don't think she's just crying over almost being assaulted in the woods. She's crying over that, of course, but I think this is also an overflowing of emotion connected to everything that's happened up to that point of going to jail. And now that's on her record, right? How is that going to affect her life going forward? Of the car breaking down, of losing Lucy and searching for Lucy and not knowing where she is. It's like this build up, you know, everything has just built up in her. And I think that happens to us. We may not cry every day. We may not cry all the time when bad things happen, but when a series of things happen 
And it's like one after the other after the other. And you have to keep your emotions in check just to get through each thing. And then you have a moment where you can actually feel it. You can actually break down or or you just have a moment when it hits you. Those are just really intense moments. And I felt that with Wendy. That it's like everything, everything hits her. Everything crashes into her. The whole last few days of the ordeal she's gone through. Everything is in that scene. And I do think that this is this is Michelle's greatest performance. For sure. I mean, I haven't seen her in a ton of stuff. So I'm not like an expert on Michelle Williams' performances. But everything that I've seen her in, this is definitely my favorite. And I would say like my second favorite is Brokeback Mountain. The role that she plays in that film. I love Brokeback Mountain. I will definitely be doing an episode about it eventually because I just think that film is a masterpiece. Um, I've seen it several times. I saw it when it first came out in a movie theater. I have an intense experience of seeing it. I think it's a stunning film. I don't care what anybody says or thinks. I love it and I think it's kind of underrated as a work of art. It became a cultural phenomenon kind of in that way as but as a work of art i don't think it's gotten its due at least i don't think so she gets herself together eventually and she goes she doesn't have anywhere to go she can't go back to the woods she doesn't have her car so she goes to the walgreens parking lot to wait for the security guard he comes by and it's actually his day off i want to talk about i want to linger on this scene because I don't know if the relationship between her and the security guard like made an impression on me as much the first time, but when I rewatched the film, I really had a lot of sympathy for him. And he's an older man. He's like in his 60s or 70s, and he is standing up for long shifts as a security guard at the at the Walgreens. He's probably not making a lot of money, let's be honest here. And this is his day off. He didn't have to come by, but he said that he got a call from the pound. So he actually took the time on his day off to go by the Walgreens, figuring that she was probably there so that he could give her his phone to use so that she could call the pound. I mean, the kindness of that, like, I don't think I felt it the the first time I saw the film, but the second time I just felt the kindness of that. Like, he didn't have to do that. What obligation does he have to her? You know, and that's Kelly Reichardt's whole question. What is our obligation to each other? He certainly goes above and beyond to do that. He could have just waited till the next day, couldn't he have? Or he could have waited till his day off was over and he went back to work. But instead, he went on his day off to give her that phone so that she could call the pound. I think that says a lot. I really do. When Wendy calls, she finds out that Lucy's with a foster family, that Lucy was found. So if he hadn't gone there to do that, she would not know that. And then he gives Wendy some money and he's like, go ahead, take it. Like he's trying to do it secretly so that his wife or his girlfriend doesn't see. I didn't catch it the first time, but he gives her $7. And I read a review of the film or it might've been the interview. It might've been an interview. And the interviewer talked about how when he saw the film in the theater, during that scene, when you realize that he only gave her $7, that there were people in the audience who laughed. It may seem like a small amount of money. It is. $7 isn't a whole lot. But to some people, that is a lot. 
especially to a Walgreens security guard who's probably making around minimum wage. Maybe a bit more, but in 2008 or 2007, I guess, when this might have been filmed, I'm not sure what year it was filmed, I'm sorry, that's minimum wage. That's like an hour of his work right there, just $7. And he may have been making a bit more, who knows. Even though it's only $7, that will buy some dog food, right? That will buy, that will buy something and every little bit helps. And to someone like him in an economically depressed area with not like the highest paying job, $7 is a lot. I mean, he certainly didn't have to give it to her. And so I think that the act itself says more, that he wanted to give her something. And I think it speaks to his humanity. I really do. It may not be a lot, but it's something, and it it's a lot to him. And of course, we come to the ending, and I have to talk about this ending. You know, Wendy, she finds the house where Lucy's being kept by a foster family. She sees the man leaving the house uh, before she arrives, and he looks like a nice man. It's a nice home with like a fenced-in backyard. It's, it looks like in a nice neighborhood. I mean, it's not like a wealthy neighborhood. It just looks sort of like a middle-class sort of neighborhood, I guess. And as soon as, when, as Wendy gets there, Lucy jumps up and recognizes her. And, you know, and but even what's even more beautiful is seeing Wendy's face when she sees Lucy. Like she acknowledges her and her eyes just light up. Wendy's does like to see Lucy again because she didn't know if she'd ever see her again she didn't know what had happened to her there's just such an immediate happiness right and I love Wendy's face in that moment I love how they kiss each other through the chain link fence (laughs) I love that Wendy has this stick that she throws and Lucy goes and gets it it's like they were never parted I wonder if Wendy went over there with the intent to take her but then she sees what a nice home it is what a good life Lucy could have and I think she starts to realize you know she doesn't have a car um she can't really take care of Lucy she doesn't have a lot of money And look at what a good life Lucy could have here. And she'll be taken care of. And that's the heartbreaking part is that Lucy has a home by the end of this film. And Wendy doesn't. Lucy has security. Wendy does not. And there is more care in our society for a dog than a human at times. She has to leave her. She tells her, you know, she'll go, she'll make money and she'll come back. I don't think she will. I said that earlier. I don't think she'll come back. We see like Wendy's face through the chain link fence and we see her tears. We see her having to make that decision to let go of Lucy and to let Lucy have a better life and to live somewhere where she can be taken care of in a way that Wendy cannot take care of her and provide a life that Wendy can't provide. She has to walk away from Lucy and we can hear her crying as she does that and what it took for her to do that, to walk away from that dog. The dog that she had spent much of the film desperately searching for, hoping to find, and the selflessness of that act to leave her because she knows that she will be taken care of. She knows that she'll have a better life than Wendy can give her. It's, it's... Like, it leaves you speechless, the strength that it takes to do that, to leave behind your companion, your best friend, 
everything that has probably gotten her through. Like, we don't know her history with Lucy. We don't know the life she might have had in Indiana and maybe how Lucy might have helped her through some different difficult experiences when she was growing up or, or something like that. We don't know their long history together. We can only assume it to walk away like that. It's just stunning. I can't describe the way that ending makes you feel, the way it breaks your heart. And yet, it's the only decision that Wendy can make. There is no alternative, really. She has to leave her behind. Wendy ends up on a train. There's a train going by and her car is not fixable, right? She has to leave the car at the mechanic's place. They're going to get rid of it for her. She was just passing through and there's nothing to keep her there anymore. It's not like she can get a job. It's not like she can start a life there. She has to get to Alaska. And so she just gets on one of those trains. We don't know where she's going. We don't know where she'll end up. And we really don't totally know where she's been either. We've only been with her for a few days in Oregon, looking for her dog, trying to, you know, keep her life from completely unraveling. And we don't know what's going to happen to her on that train. To me, there is a sense of possible danger, a sense of what is she going to do? Where is she going to go? Is she going to make it to Alaska? Is she going to get found out? Is she going to get arrested again? How's she going to cope without Lucy, without anybody in the world to help her or to be there for her? I mean, what it takes to to get through that. But she seems to have this goal in mind of getting to Alaska. That something about Alaska is like a promised land to her. I mean, why else would she go on this journey, you know, to get up there? It reminds me a little bit of Rosetta by the Dardan brothers because Rosetta in that film she is like obsessed with having a job. She just wants to be employed. She just wants a stable job so that she can have a better life, so that she can have a life like everybody else has. And she will go to any lengths to have a job, keep a job. She wants it so badly and so desperately. Wendy's focus on this one thing, you know, getting to Alaska it kind of reminds me of that, of maybe Alaska for her is like this promise of another life, of a better life, a different life. And maybe in that way, Wendy's kind of a dreamer and maybe she's like all of us. I think all of us sometimes dream of our lives getting better or maybe something's right around the corner, something good's going to happen to us. I think she's also probably trying to recover from what happened in Oregon of everything that went wrong. You don't know what's going to happen to her. You know what happens to Lucy. She's going to be at this home. She's probably going to be taken care of and loved and all of that. Who's there to love Wendy? Who's there to take care of Wendy? Who's there to give a home to Wendy? Nobody. That's sort of the sadness that I'm left with about this film and about our society, honestly. I mean, yeah, the film was made 11 years ago, but I just think it still speaks to us now. So many themes, you know, of financial precarity, economic instability. I think those are still very strong and how just one event can unravel your life. This is just such a powerful film in every way. The performance that Michelle Williams gives, the brilliant uh, writing and directing by Kelly Reichard. So far, 
from what I've seen of Reichardt, this is my favorite by far of hers. I liked Mink's Cutoff, but I think the themes in Wendy and Lucy just hit so close to home for me. Our lives are so precarious and so fragile, and I don't think people get that. You know, I think people who have sort of, things have always gone right for them. There are people like that in the world. They, when they were children, their parents provided everything for them. They went to college debt-free because their parents paid for it. You know, they've had health care their entire lives. They've not wanted for anything. There are a lot of Andes in this world, more Andes than I think we like to acknowledge. And it's hard for them to understand the Wendy's of the world. <laughs> It's hard for them to understand people who live very precarious existences. But even people who seem to have good lives or have it together, all it takes is just one catastrophic event. That's all it takes. Losing a spouse, getting an injury, hurting yourself in some way, something happens to your body, all kinds of things. Your car breaking down, that's what it is for Wendy. Our lives are just so fragile. And I wish that we could live in a way where we didn't judge people so harshly and where we acknowledged that there's a lot of stuff beyond our control and that we didn't blame people for their own misfortune or for things that are really beyond their control. I wish we lived in a different kind of society and a different kind of world where somebody like Wendy didn't have to struggle so much where she had more resources and more options, right? The film is devastating in a lot of ways and heartbreaking. Her predicament, her situation, there's still so much mystery about her. Where does she end up? Where does she go? What happens to her? Does she ever go back for Lucy? I think the viewer has to make it up for themselves. And I really loved this quote by Gus Van Sant. He did an interview with Kelly Reichardt for Bomb Magazine. And this is what he said about the film. He said, quote, After watching Wendy and Lucy, it was just palpable. It was so omnipresent. I was part of the film, but the film had stopped. I was actually now in my own version of it, just dealing with my life. It had infused me with its own story. I was still living it which is a great achievement and really hard to do. It's a delicate thing to get somebody into a feeling that they can't actually get rid of right away, unquote. That's what this film is, is, and that's what every great film is, or any film that stays with me, haunts me, or that I want to talk about on this podcast, is that the film goes on even after it ends that it becomes a part of me, that I think about it, that it exists inside of me in some way. And I think Wendy and Lucy is that kind of film. So I'm really glad I could cover it and talk about it and explore it with you. And I hope that you enjoyed the episode and that you found some value in it. So I will stop here. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. <laughs>